Well, I'm going to give us a little bit of a sense of where we're heading over the next uh, few weeks. Next week, we're going to have some of our uh, young men who will be uh, leading service, and so it'll be a good chance to uh, to spend some time uh, just watching what God's doing in the in the midst of some of our of our younger uh, members and participants, parts of the congregation, and then um, separate and apart from that, uh, we're going to be having a lunch uh, that's going to be for folks who are ish twenty ish to thirty five ish. Uh, that's next Sunday. If you can attend, please let me know. And I do need to clarify: this is why it's separate and apart from that lunch is not just for young men. Uh, women are permitted to attend the, the luncheon. And uh, so if you can be a part of that, uh, please just let me know. We'd be glad to have you. Also, if it feels like over the next few weeks we, get, uh, we stall out in 1 Corinthians 3, it's because as I was going through this text, I realized there's an awful lot of very relevant things happening in this text that speak to our context. And so we're going to actually be spending several weeks uh, in this particular uh, section of Colossians chapter 3. If you have ever felt the conflict between who you know you are in Christ and how you live, this is a sermon for you. So if you have always lived exactly the life that the Bible outlines, if you are completely already like Christ, then you don't even have to listen to today's sermon because you've already arrived there. There are two authors, Chip and Dan Heath, who tell the story of human behavior through the, the illustration of an elephant and its rider. And they imagine what it would be like for the rider to try to get the elephant to go in a direction that the rider wants. And in the illustration that they use, they say that the elephant is the flesh or the old self. The, in, in their illustration, they say that the elephant is like the emotions and the, and, and the heart of us. And the rider is like the intellect, the, the, the mind. And the question for them becomes, how does the rider get the elephant where they want to go? But I think what Paul does is Paul takes this illustration, and he can, it can serve as an illustration for us in Paul asking, how is it that Christians are to live the life that God calls them to live? With the rider, kind of, I think, in the language of Paul, the rider is this new Christian self. And the elephant is the old life, the old man, what language Paul will use in the flesh. And the question becomes, how does that happen? And there's going to be all sorts of answers and narratives that we will find in terms of how does that happen. And this is the goal, the direction to which Paul thinks we need to be heading, that we would present everyone mature in Christ, or that we have this new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator, of course, image being the language that Paul uses in reference to Jesus. So we're talking about becoming Christ-like, and we ourselves, for, for thousands of years, Christians have been asking the question, how do we get to that destination? And the Colossians had their own approach. It's what we looked at last week, this asceticism, this denial of the flesh. They, they, they said you go through this process where essentially you starve the elephant... And now the elephant's so weak that you will now be able to pull it and yank it in whatever direction that you want it to go. And Paul confronts that idea and says, no, that's not how you deal with the flesh. Because all you're doing is dealing with the outward self, but not really the ego or the inward man. And I think our culture, America, has come up with its own answer in terms of how we move the elephant. We believe in something called willpower. 
That means the rider gets down, he lifts weights, he does push-ups, and now he's going to be strong enough to pull the elephant in whatever direction that he wishes or chooses. And ironically, this approach has the longest historical track record of not working. It's called the Old Testament. Read it and see how successful people were in using their strength to get the elephant to go to where the elephant needed to go. Now, ironically, even what sounds like a very spiritual answer has surfaced, and that is that God will do it apart from the rider. God is powerful, and God is sovereign, and so if God wants the elephant to get somewhere, well, by all means, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do to either help it or to stop it. The story is told of a man who went to see his preacher and confessed that he was beginning to have feelings for a lady at work. And he wanted the preacher to pray for him, and the preacher did. And he said, in addition to praying for you, you need to change some of your work habits, lifestyles, and choices. And the man said, I'm confident that God's going to protect me. I don't need to change anything. And you don't need me to tell you the rest of the story, do you? Because God does not work apart from the rider being a part of that process. So how does one get the elephant and the rider both to the destination of presenting everyone mature in Christ? And this has been the question of sorts that Paul has been addressing. And Paul uses what he so often does. He uses a scenic route when he answers questions. See, this is just the general pattern that we find in Paul, is that Paul is made aware of a problem. It usually has to do with morals or ethics, or lifestyle. In Colossians, we we get the sense of what people are teaching that are not right. In places like Corinth, we get the issue of of lawsuits and a man having his father's wife. In in Rome, we have the issue of Gentiles and of uh, Jews who are fighting. And so Paul addresses these. The letters are Paul addressing these sort of issues. But if you ever wondered why Eutychus managed to fall asleep in the window... It's because Paul takes the scenic route when he addresses these issues. And so Paul will then talk about his answer that is always grounded in the past. I think of Paul like the old person who says, well, do you remember the time when? I don't want a story. I just want the answer. Tell me what I need to do here. But Paul will always reference two things that have happened in the past before he addresses the moral or the ethical or the lifestyle questions. And the first stop that he always takes is he will tell people about the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He says, if we're going to talk about morals, if we're going to talk about ethics, if we're going to talk about lifestyle, I need to tell you about something that happened long ago on a hill. And he will introduce us to Christ's gift. And so the place we find that focus in Colossians is chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul will tell us that Christ has come to have first place in everything, because through him God has reconciled to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of Christ. And Paul is beginning to answer the question of how they are to live and to conduct themselves, but he doesn't do it until he first tells us about the cross and its importance and significance. Now, if there were a smart aleck at any of these churches, then I'm sure there are, and any of ours, 
Somebody would raise their hand as Paul's by, you know, chapter 1 and say, Paul, what does this have to do with anything? It's not the question we ask. We know about this, but Paul, Paul is saying this is important. Let's make sure we don't address that final thing until we stop by and talk about the cross. But there's a second thing, a second stop that Paul always likes to make when he's talking about ethics and morals and lifestyle. And that's of our baptism. It's our baptisms where we are joined in union with Christ. As Paul said in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we were buried with him in baptism. We were raised with him through faith and the power of God. So you have this historical event of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension. And in our baptism, those two things are joined and united together as a single story, as a single event. And so before Paul addresses anything, he's going to say, we've got cross and we have baptism, and now you are joined in the very story of the cross. And it becomes your own narrative and your own story. And Paul believes that at baptism there are these significant, decisive events where what was done on the cross becomes actualized in our very own lives. And so Paul will, in chapter 3, use language like once, how we used to live, but now... We live in a completely different way. He will talk about having stripped off something and now being clothed yourselves with something. And that which is stripped off is the old self, and that which we are clothed with is the new self. And so he's going to say everything that we do and that we live flows out of the fact that Christ on the cross and our baptism and union with it, everything going forward has to be in light of or because of that event. And so at this point, we can expect, again, the cheeky church member will raise his hand and say, yes, but how does the rider get the elephant to go where it needs to go? Paul has told us about the cross. Paul has told us about baptism. And finally, to those who are the pragmatists in the congregation, to those who are looking at their watches saying, when is Paul going to tell us what we know he's going to tell us? By chapter 3, we begin to continue to get to that place where, where they've been listening this whole time for a specific word, and they know when Paul says that word, he's going to get into things, kind of, sort of, because Paul has a habit of doing this, saying this word, but he's not really yet ready to tell them what they need to do in response. But chapter 3, verse 1, we get to the word, and unfortunately, the majority of our English translations don't even have the word. But the word that we find in chapter 3, verse 1, is therefore. In the New American Standard Bible, therefore, if or since you have been raised up with Christ. The word therefore implies the conclusion to a process of reasoning. This word means it is connected to something that has come before it. You will never find this word suspended in midair, just thrown out there in the middle of nowhere. It's always connected to or placed on top of something that has happened before. I was once at Walmart, and I saw a kid, probably three or four, just wandering around the store. So I followed him around for a little bit, and I watched for parents, and there were no parents around. And so eventually I told the Walmart employee, there's a lost kid. Because I have this assumption if you find a kid at Walmart who is three or four, there is also probably a parent there also. And you have to find them because they belong together. Therefore, in the Bible, is the lost Walmart kid. 
When you find the word therefore, you have to find where it belongs. It belongs somewhere. It connects to something that has already come before it. And in this case, the therefore of 3.1 is easy to find its origin and its history because it goes back to chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So we realize we've already been told we've been raised. And now Paul says, because you have been raised, now here are my instructions. Here's what you are to do as a response to the resurrection that has already happened. And it's important to notice Paul uses Colossians as he speaks of resurrection. Here he speaks of resurrection in the past tense. Paul wants us to know when are we living the resurrected life right now. In the present reality, we are living the resurrected life. And so this is the place where Paul will connect the implications of what God did on the cross and in baptism in terms of how we live. See, in many ways, what is happening in chapters 1 and 2 is that Paul is telling us what God did with the elephant. What God did with all of those powers and forces that, that overwhelmed us by ruling over us that those have been dealt with through the cross. That, that, that in essence, what has happened is that the elephant has had heart surgery. And the elephant has a new heart. Then no longer does the elephant want to go to the left, but it has a natural inclination because of what God's done to want to go to the right. But it needs to be trained by the rider. The, the, the rider is not sitting on the top of the elephant drinking Cokes, knowing that this will all work out well. This is a strenuous thing that the rider participates in. But the elephant now will be willing to go in the direction that it's supposed to go. And the language that you will find that speaks of what we're talking about is to become what you are. And I love this way that one, uh, one writer speaks of this. He says, this statement is illogical. It is paradoxical. It is tension-causing, yet it is inescapable. That we as Christians must become what we in fact actually already are. And perhaps we can see a bit of the logic of this as we find this language of death in chapter 2, verse 12. Paul told us in verse 12, you've been buried. So we died. Okay, so if you've died, you are what? Dead, right? But then in the present tense, Paul will tell us in chapter 3, verse 5, to put to death. How can you already have died in the past and presently be putting things to death? And this is the combination of becoming what you already are. Something has been achieved and actualized in the cross and in our baptism that now must become a reality in the ways that we live and the ways that we conduct ourselves. And this seems to be what Paul is saying, is that we have been raised with Christ, something that happened in the past, and now that dictates our present reality and that we seek the things that are above. When my grandpa was getting older, my parents were concerned and their siblings, my aunts and uncles, were concerned that he should not be living by himself anymore. But this idea of going to a nursing home was not something that he wanted to entertain. He didn't want to have anything to do with that idea. And so they came up with an idea. They would give him a safety bracelet. He would put on the bracelet and if he, if he fell, which he was having problems falling, he would push the button and then people would come and help him. So what the intention of that bracelet was to do was to enable him to live in a way that he could not otherwise live if he didn't have it. 
But if you've ever had a problem with a parent who you had a great solution, if grandpa never puts it on, it does no good, does it? You have the opportunity to live independently and free with this requirement. But if it is not something you actualize in your choices and in your living, it will not enable it. And so grandpa ended up in a nursing home where he didn't want to be. But such is the death and the burial and the resurrection. It is given to us, but yet we have to put it on. We have to take advantage of what has been done for us. We have to become what we already are. And it is in chapter 3 where Paul will really lean into this aspect of what we do in the participating work as a rider, in the effort to get the elephant to where it needs to go. And so chapter 3 will be broken up into three sections. The first, where Paul is going to reorient our direction to this new reality in Christ. There's going to be things we need to take off, and then there's going to be things that we need to put on. And that's going to be our topic over the next few weeks as we look at the details there. But I want you to notice as you see the text and as I read it once again, I want you to notice ethics that are grounded in the past tense, ethics that are grounded in the present tense, and ethics that are grounded in the future tense. So let me read this text while you think about those three aspects. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Do you see the past tense and the present tense and the future tense? And it's all wrapped up and interconnected with Christ. So in the past, we have been raised with Christ. So in the present, we live in union with Christ. In the, pre- in the present tense, we see that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and then we also see that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so our present tense reality is because of Christ's present tense reality, and when Christ who is revealed, future tense, then we also will be revealed with him in glory, future tense. Whatever happens with the reality of Christ becomes our story and our fate as well. So how does the writer live in the present tense in light of what has been done in the past? How does the writer participate in this process of transforming and conforming oneself into the image of Christ? And Paul uses what in Greek are two words that encourage a continual effort and that perhaps more importantly, these two words will not occur naturally. What we come to find out is this Christian life has no cruise control. There is no sitting on the top as the rider drinking Coca-Cola every day. There is participation on our part. And those two words, depending on your translation, are seeking or setting and setting your minds. So we seek things that are above and we set our minds on things above. And hidden underneath these two words is this great mystery I think that we've been exploring which is the way we participate in the coming about of our very own formation. The seeking and the setting our minds, these cannot happen without us participating in the process. In fact, even as Christians, we could choose to set our minds on things or to seek things that are not of God, and God will allow us to chase and to pursue those things. 
So to seek has this aspect or this element to, to desire and to want something. And the NIV, it begins to kind of unpack this essence when it talks about setting your hearts because what it's really getting at is the loves and the desires and the affections of our hearts. And we are to seek the things that are above. Now, we need to be careful as we begin to talk about what does it mean for something to be something that is above. Because Paul has been warning the Colossians about their false form of above-seeking. I mean, they are infatuated with these, these visions. Paul calls it dwelling on visions. And what it's talking about is honestly going on and on and talking to everyone about visions. So they would say, hey, we're already seeking things above. I mean, we're trying to reach to that higher plane, but that's not what Paul is talking about because the things above are where Christ is. So this is not a geographic term. This is not a spatial term. This is a term about locating where Christ is and where he is. Those are the things that are above. That's why in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, hey, if you see me in prison and you visit me, and everyone's going to say, well, when did we see you in prison? And Jesus said, whatever you do, the least is so when someone is in prison, specifically when a brother or sister is in prison, to seek them out means to seek what? To seek things above, because that's where Christ is. Later in chapter 3, we're going to talk about husbands and wives, parents and children. And attending to those things means attending to where Christ is. Our families represent the things that are above. And so Paul will encourage us about what we seek and long for. And then he'll talk about setting our minds. And again, this is a word we don't want to define too narrowly, which just means thinking. It encapsulates all of us, kind of our, our attitude, our dispositions, our minds, our hearts. All of that's wrapped up in it. It's a basic aim, a direction, and an orientation of your behavior. See, I think it would be fair to say, and I think Paul would agree, that if you tell me what you're seeking and you tell me what you're setting your mind on, I can tell you where the elephant's going to go. Because our lifestyles follow that which we long for and that which we desire. And Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards once said, true religion in great part consists of holy affections. What are the things that we're most in love with? What are the things that we're most chasing after? And that's what we will become there's a now i guess middle-aged man named shane hipson he had to do it all of us probably had to do at one point decide what we're going to be when we grew up and he was a christian and he wanted to take his faith into consideration as he chose his career and he was very artistic and enjoyed doing creative things so he decided to go into advertising and actually had a very very successful career as an advertiser but several years into doing it he woke up one day and he realized, what I am doing is incompatible with my faith. He was at the time, he was doing an advertisement campaign with Porsche. And he says of that experience, he said, my job was to save people from feeling impotent, unattractive, and powerless by offering them a Porsche, which promised to fix all those problems. It's not that he was advertising for something immoral, but what he realized was, I am teaching people to seek and to long for something that is not Christ. And he could no longer in good conscience continue to work as an advertiser. Now he's a Christian author teaching people to long for Christ. 
instead of all those things he used to teach people to long for. See, I think as Christians it's important that we take inventory on what we are seeking and what we're setting our minds on. So I guess my question for you is, what are you pouring yourself out for? What are the things that motivate you to continue doing what you're doing? What for you commands your best effort and your best energy? And what is it that you think about when there's nothing else to think about? And as you take inventory of those questions, it probably will become clear what you are seeking and what you're setting your minds on. See, Paul believes that we are going to vigorously and rigorously chase after something. And he wants us to ensure that what we are pursuing is Christ-likeness. We are going to use our talents. We're going to use our financial resources. We're going to use our energy. We're going to use our skill. We're going to use our time. But would you be able to say of that, that I have used it because Christ is all and in all? Would you be able to say that if I gain Christ, whatever else I lose is nothing? See, Paul is helping us to answer the question, how does the rider control the elephant? He is constantly reminding us of what Christ did on the cross. He is constantly reminding us of the waters of baptism. And now he's reminding us of what the rider must do. Every choice, every desire, every longing, every orientation must be in the direction of Christ. The one who is seated above. See, the only way to achieve this goal of growing into Christ's likeness is to desire it more than you desire anything else. And this is what one Christian writer calls a strangely relaxed kind of strenuousness. I think that's a great description for the Christian life, a strangely relaxed kind of strenuousness. So often we talk about what we receive from Christ. And Paul now begins to talk about what Christ is asking of us. And so we will not sit comfortably on the top of the elephant. There will be some sweating involved in this. There will be times where you feel tired and exhausted in the process. But because of Christ's enabling, we will end at the destination because of our union with Christ, of growing into the very likeness of Christ. And so in this process, I offer this word of blessing that the Lord would bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we go about this process, we never do it alone, do we? And that's why Paul offered this blessing over the church in Corinth, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the love of God and that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with you all. God bless. There's going to be some folks in the back to pray with you if you want someone to pray with this morning. Just come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this final song.